0: hello greetings thanks for your interest in spiritual matters my name Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ where disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles in Matthew chapter 4 and in verse 17 as Jesus begins his ministry he it is written that he began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand And then in verse 23, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Kingdom is a very important part of Christianity and of the message of Jesus and what Jesus came to establish and to uh, uh, found here on earth. In the American Standard Version, the term kingdom is used 160 times in 150 verses. That's quite a lot. It's a predominant way that the purposes of God are realized in Jesus. And as we can see, as Jesus stands before the high priest and the Sanhedrin in Matthew 26 and verse 64, uh, it kind of anchors who he is, his own self-identification. He's the son of man who would receive a kingdom from the ancient of days, from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 12 and chapter 19 and verse 8, the gospel that was preached by the apostles, understood as the gospel uh, of the kingdom of God in Christ. And yet, there's a lot of confusion about the kingdom. Some suggest the kingdom's not yet present. Others see it as a present reality. Some want to make a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Others see them as the same thing. Some would identify the kingdom entirely with the church. Others see the church as entirely separate from the kingdom, and some take a very different approach. The kingdom is kind of an abstraction for another time and place in the mind of some people. Other people see that the kingdom is a present and very near reality with a manifestation to fullness yet to be revealed. And that is why it is good for us to spend some time to search the scriptures to sort out what has been made known about the kingdom of heaven. And we can do that by considering first, what's a kingdom? Why does Jesus speak of the kingdom of heaven? And what, how does it relate to the kingdom of God? And uh, when, where, and how will the kingdom of heaven be realized? And so again, we begin with this term, very important for us to understand, especially if you come from America uh, or you're part of a large part of the world that no longer has kingdoms. Uh, Most of us have gotten rid of kings and therefore kingdom talk seems kind of strange. Uh, A kingdom is, in short, that over which a king rules. When we think of kingdoms, we normally think of land and territory, which makes sense because that's normally what a person rules over. And so, for instance, the United Kingdom is the territory over which Queen Elizabeth II is sovereign. But it's not just the land, it's also the people who have offered their allegiance to her. Uh, Spain and Thailand are also kingdoms, and there are a few others in the world as well. So that which a king rules in earthly terms tends to be the land and the people over which a king uh, has authority. So how does kingdom then relate to God and Jesus? In Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, Paul declares that all authority is God's. And any authority that exists gets its authority from God. In Matthew 20 and verse 18, Jesus declares that he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so the kingdom of God is all that which God rules over. And since he's given the rule of the kingdom to Jesus, it's Jesus who rules over the kingdom. And that is why in Peter's great declaration in Proclaiming the gospel in Acts 2 and verse 36 uh, for let all the house of Israel know that God has made this Jesus whom you've crucified both Lord and Christ Kurios and Christos Christos the Messiah uh, the King the Lord another one of those powerful titles uh, that Caesar arrogated for himself and so the idea is that Jesus rules over his kingdom as its King as its Lord So if a kingdom is that over which a king reigns, what should we make of Jesus' reference there in Matthew 4 about the kingdom of heaven? Well, we can very easily connect the two. A kingdom is that over which a king reigns. Jesus calls it the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, Jesus must rule over heaven. And it's not that this claim is wrong. In Matthew uh, uh, 6 and verse 10, we see that God reigns in heaven. In fact, Jesus' whole prayer is that may the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Jesus rules the kingdom from heaven, and in Philippians 3 and verse 20, uh, he said our citizenship is in heaven. But the kingdom of heaven is a phrase we see only in Matthew's gospel. In the contrast between Mark and Luke's gospel is very instructive. So in Mark 1 and verse 15, which is parallel to Mark 4 and verse 17, very similar statement, but what does Mark say uh, instead? He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And in Luke 4 and verse 43, a verse that is parallel to Matthew 4 and verse 23, Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And this is not just a one-off. This is not an accident throughout Mark and Luke's gospel, uh, where the kingdom is described as the kingdom of God, where Matthew will use kingdom of heaven in the very same context. So is there a difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Some might try to make a a distinction between them, but the parallel use of the terms in the Gospels, and not just any Gospels, but the synoptics, Matthew versus Mark and Luke, uh, really work against that kind of claim. Uh, It's not really a contradiction. It's not like uh, if Jesus said God but not heaven, that somehow Matthew has mistakenly uh, spoken wrongly about what Jesus said. Uh, Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God have the same referent. It's really just a different way of talking about it, because the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. Heaven is not a person. We have good reason to question whether heaven is even really a place. It's not like uh, heaven is ruling over anything. Uh, The reference to heaven is speaking of the one who dwells and reigns in heaven, who is God. Matthew 6 and verse 9, Acts 17 verse 24, especially Revelation 4, 1 through 3, uh, where there's a picture of him who sits on the throne um in heaven which would be god and so the kingdom of heaven is a way of speaking about the rule of god so the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of god god rules over heaven but also over the earth and over all things so that then leads to the question okay so the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of god how is it realized and a lot of people want to insist that something that's going to happen in the future A lot of people who are very high on various forms of eschatology, of end times discussions, uh, will try to emphasize passages that show the fullness of the kingdom coming in the future to imagine that the kingdom is entirely in the future. Something maybe from 1 Corinthians 15 or views of Revelation and things like that. But the scriptures testify throughout and abundantly that the kingdom would be established in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It is true that when Jesus is preaching in Matthew chapter 4, he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not here yet. In chapter 26, again, we talked about this uh, a little bit earlier. When uh, Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin, he declares, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. All of which goes back to Daniel 7 and Psalm 110. It's very interesting to see uh, that's before Jesus dies and before his resurrection. Then we turn to Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is granted a vision of Jesus. This is after his death, after his resurrection, as Stephen is being martyred. And he declares in verse 56 I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So the thing that Jesus says is coming. In Matthew twenty six, Stephen sees as present reality. In Matthew twenty eight, verse nineteen, Jesus says, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me." He already has it. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In Acts two, verse thirty six, uh, Jesus' lordship is a already established thing, and the apostles will go on to speak of the kingdom itself as something that is already in place, as a present reality. And so Paul in Colossians, the first chapter. And in verse 13, we'll say, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Transferred us, that's past tense. So Paul's writing it as a past tense reality that people have already been transferred into the kingdom. And that was true um, around 60 of our era. In Revelation 1 and verse 6, Jesus has made us a kingdom to God. Again, past tense. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, this throne scene before God, a beautiful scene indeed. Uh, What uh, what is everybody declaring? And it's something that is, by common confession, a present tense reality. Uh, Even those who look to Revelation being fulfilled mostly in the future will recognize that chapters 4 and 5 are speaking of present reality in John's day. And what does he declare? In verse 9 and 10, to the Lamb to jesus worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransom people for god from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our god and they shall reign on the earth you have made them a kingdom it's past tense and so when we look at the timing of the kingdom yes absolutely the kingdom is here and now jesus rules over heaven and earth and christians are to serve him as lord in his kingdom now a lot of people will emphasize, but there's other passages, like in First Corinthians 15, where, you know, the final enemy to be defeated is death, and that hasn't happened yet. And there's lots of things about the kingdom that don't seem to be fulfilled, and that's absolutely true, and it's not a contradiction. Instead, uh, it's part of a paradigm we see throughout the New Testament, which is a now and not yet, that God's promises in Jesus have begun to be fulfilled, and we see a, a manifestation of them now, but the fullness of the manifestation is something we don't yet have. So, for instance, in First Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter will talk this way about salvation, uh, another very important topic, another one that follows that same pattern. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, in verse 3, According to God's great mercy, he has caused us, past tense, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And again at the end, verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, coming the out- outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So are we saved now or in the future? And Peter's answer here is clearly yes. We've already been born again. We already have some of the fruit of the new life and salvation. Uh, And yet our salvation is not fully realized. We've not yet been delivered from death. We are not yet uh, in the fullness of what God has uh, promised in Jesus. And as it is with salvation, so it is with the kingdom. Uh, In many ways, the kingdom still needs to come. People need to come and hear the gospel. And the will of God needs to be done on earth as it is in heaven which it has not yet accomplished yet. and we can So, we can see that the kingdom is here and now, we participate in the kingdom of the Son, but a fullness of its manifestation is not yet. But what about those who make up that kingdom? Well, despite popular opinion, especially in America, there's no one piece of territory or one ethnic group over which Jesus reigns as king. Uh, there's not one Christian nation, there's not one group of people who are Christian, uh, because they're part of that group of people. In John 18, verse 36, Jesus makes it clear that his kingdom is not of this world. That's a present tense reality when he said it, and it continues to be a present tense reality. As we saw in Revelation 5, 9, and 10, Jesus makes a kingdom out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. People from all tribes, nations, uh, come together to be a kingdom in Jesus. And therefore, no one nation is a Christian nation. No one group of people is a chosen people. Anyone who wants to serve God according to what he has made known in Christ can trust in Jesus and be transferred into the kingdom of Jesus. And that's the purpose that God has eternally purposed in Jesus to accomplish uh, in Ephesians 3, uh, 10 through 12. And the means of access is described very powerfully in Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul describes how Jesus killed the hostility between Jew and Gentile by taking away the statues and ordinances that separated them by dying on the cross. And so... The kingdom is open to anyone who would come and follow Jesus. But what is the dimensions of that reign of God? That's something else that's important to consider. Because the concept of God's kingdom and reign really has two aspects in Scripture. The kingdom, as we will see, is often identified with those who serve God in Christ and submit to his rule. That's the kingdom of which our citizenship is in heaven, in Philippians 3, 20, and 21. And so, in a lot of times when they talk about the kingdom, the kingdom is those who actually trust in Jesus. But what about everybody else? All the people who don't listen to Jesus. Well, they're under Jesus' reign as well. Jesus has all authority in heaven on earth in Matthew 28 and verse 18. In John 12, verse 48, his word will judge all of them. If his word's going to judge all of them, then they're all amenable to his word uh, uh, to be held to account. And so, God's rule encompasses everyone. This is probably the meaning of the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, 24-30. That there's going to be all of these people who are wicked, who will endure until the final day, and then they will be uh, uh, cast out. And that's why Jesus must pray for God's will to be done on earth as in heaven, because many are not going to submit to God's purposes in Christ. Well, how can this be? Interestingly, there's a parable that is uh, familiar to us perhaps better in Matthew's version of the parable of the talents in, in Matthew chapter 25, 14 through 30. Luke has a somewhat different version of that parable in Luke 19, 11 through 27, uh, the parable of the minas. You still have three guys. You still have um, one getting uh, 10 minas, one getting five minas, and one having one minor. The numbers are a little different, uh, but you have... Um, a couple details. The the, the nobleman leaves, and when he leaves, uh, the citizens in verse 14 hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Uh, when he comes back, he orders the servants to be called into account. Uh, the last man, of course, is um, cast out just like the one talent servant in Matthew 25. And at the very end, verse 27, But as for these enemies of mine who do not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Uh, kind of bloody powerful thing there. There's little detail additions there as the story is presented in Luke kind of help us out because the idea here is that an old man is Jesus. He leaves. His servants are supposed to be busy doing their work. Other people are going to rebel against his rule. Uh, and when he comes back, there's going to be an accounting for that. So just because people do not submit to the rule of Jesus doesn't mean that they're not sub- subject to his rule. And so that's why there's two senses of the kingdom. Jesus is rule is over everybody whether they recognize it or not but there's also a very special way of of talking about the kingdom as those who do submit to god's purposes in jesus And now we get to the question of what we call a spatial sense, the sense of place. We mentioned earlier, might have shocked you then, that we, there's some question as to whether heaven is a place. And, and you might think, wait a second, well, yeah, heaven's a place, that's where God is. And you know, we're, it's not that we're in den- a denial that God is in heaven, but the question is, where is heaven? And the whole idea of heaven being a place, uh, it's very easy to fall in that tra- trap, to think, well, heaven's up there somewhere. Uh, and yet, God is greater than heaven. In First Kings eight, and verse twenty-seven, He's not far from us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. And He is in all things. In Acts seventeen, twenty-eight, and Ephesians four, six. And when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, it's not really about heaven as much as it is about the One who reigns from heaven. It's less about heaven as a spiritual, as a spatial location, excuse me, and much more about uh, the reign of God emanating from heaven or coming from heaven. And it's not just true about the kingdom of heaven. It'll be true also by extension of all the various phrases that get associated with it. So in Matthew 6.20, Jesus talks about uh, storing up treasure in heaven. Should we expect that there is in some spatial location out in the ether a, a bank that has a, a record of all our good, good deeds to some extent? No. Uh, it's a reference to blessings and glory that God is going to bestow upon those who seek his purposes. We can see that in Romans 8.18 in a different language. So Philippians 3 and verse 20, we've mentioned that. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a savior, right? Uh, Do any of us have passports that have heaven uh, as the uh, original locator? No. Uh, It means our primary loyalty is to the one who reigns in heaven, to God and his purposes, the very one whom we await to return, Jesus to raise us from the dead in verse 21. So in 1 Peter 1 verse 4, another one that people want to emphasize a lot, our inheritance is reserved for you in heaven. Well, yes, it's reserved in heaven because it's because Jesus is there reigning. It's not going to be overthrown by worldly actors. You know, just because people uh, persecute doesn't mean that we're going to lose out on that uh, uh, salvation. It's, it's a source of encouragement that it's reserved for us in a place where people can't get to it. Very much like Paul's idea in Romans 8, 31-39, the that there's no one, nothing that can separate us from the love of God. The fulfillment of the promises will start in heaven. Um, we've discussed at other times that uh, we have reason to believe that Christians uh, who are faithful will go to heaven when they die. But in Revelation 21 and 22, after the resurrection, the heavenly city, which is the bride of the church, is envisioned as coming down from heaven. uh, And God will dwell in their midst. And so it's not the ultimate destination there uh, of where the ultimate fulfillment of the inheritance will await. And so we need to be very careful when we talk about kingdom of heaven and heavenly stuff that we understand that heaven in terms of the kingdom is about the one who rules there more than it as a spatial location or as uh, anything of that sort. And so we don't get caught up into thinking about all these things as heavenly as in you have to be in the heaven to be there to get these things when in fact it's talking more about God and Jesus and the things that they provide uh, through what God has done in Jesus. The big question is also, what is the relationship between the kingdom and the church? There's strong associations between the kingdom and the church. We have been transferred into the kingdom of Jesus, we saw in Colossians 1, verse 13. And the church is the body of Christ, uh, nine verses later. Jesus was given all rule and authority, we saw. And in Ephesians 1, 22-23, we're told that God gave him to be the head over the church. uh, That should be subject to him. Those who are who submit to God's purposes in Christ are part of the kingdom and the church. We see this in Ephesians two and three and Colossians one. And so the kingdom of heaven is manifest on earth right now as the church, and in the church. But the kingdom is more than the church. It would include all the faithful Israel who came before us. This we can see vividly expressed in the Hebrews author uh, letter in Hebrews eleven uh, one through forty. And in another sense, uh, God's rule of, over all the nations uh, because they will be called into judgment for their disobedience against him in the name of Jesus, as we saw there in the parable of the minus, and we can see in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. And so, the church is part of the kingdom. The kingdom has a greater view than just the church. And so, for a lot of reasons, and many of them good, when we think about the church, we think about it primarily in terms of its corporate and assembly senses. And there's good reason for that, lest we start burning the church with things that the church isn't supposed to be burdened with as a corporate collective. But as Christians, we're constantly serving in the body of Christ, even as individuals outside the assembly, if we take Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and other passages seriously. We work to build each other up. We could say that we do those things for the church, in the name of the church, but again, that can get dicey for a lot of reasons. But we can make maybe a profitable distinction that. That may not really just reality, but just for our own benefit, that we're doing that kind of stuff for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Um, And so it's profitable for us in this way to think of our lives in terms of a kingdom focus. Because at all points in our lives, whether we are assembled or not, we are subjects of the king, and we should be working to advance his purposes in his kingdom. So when we're assembled in the local church, we work for his kingdom. When we encourage fellow Christians who are outside of the local church, we are working in his kingdom. When we do our individual work in life to serve Jesus, that's work for the kingdom. And sometimes that kingdom focus can help us look beyond our obligation to the local congregation, to see the work that God have us to do out there in our our personal lives and globally. And that is why it's so important for us to seek to serve Jesus in his kingdom and to understand uh, what God is accomplishing in Jesus' uh, terms of that kingdom and according to that kingdom. And so that's the kingdom of heaven. A kingdom is that over which a king reigns. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is not about a spatial place out there, but it's about the reign of God and the accomplishment of his purposes in Jesus. And we are now invited to participate in that kingdom and its work in the here and now. It's not a promise to come only. And therefore, let us strive to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven and obtain the resurrection of life by participation in the kingdom of God in Christ. So glad you've joined us. If you've benefited by this lesson, we encourage you to please share it with friends, family, and others on social media if you'd like to learn more about us you'd like to talk about some of the things you heard if you'd like to uh, study the scripture you have a prayer request or you just want to check us out you can find out more about us online at venicechurchofchrist.org we're also on uh, various forms of social media if i can be of service please reach out to me through my website at deliverablevitae.com that's www.deverbovitae.com. i again thank you have a great day